I'm delighted to bring on Olga Sazanova to the Data Dive podcast. Olga got her PhD in biomedical engineering from Boston University and was a research fellow at the Stanford University School of Medicine before spending several years working as a data scientist in the healthcare space. Thank you to Olga for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the data science and computational science fields. Yeah, I'm happy to. So as you, as you said, I got my PhD in biomedical engineering and I got my undergraduate degree in that field as well. But the research that I did as an undergrad and, and a lot of the work I did in graduate school was actually bench science. So, you know, your standard uh, molecular assays, staining slides, running ELISAs, running Western blots. And, you know, it was all quite interesting. But then toward the end of my PhD, I had the opportunity to do some computational work. And as a biomedical engineering major and then graduate student, the computational side was there in the background all along. In the classes I had to take, I had to use MATLAB, so I was familiar with those tools. We had to model heat transfer for various assignments in class. So it wasn't an entirely a huge leap to make to then start analyzing my own data. I started to do this with imaging data because the type of data I was gathering, I wasn't very happy with the idea of drawing scientific conclusions from kind of squinting at the pictures and deciding which one looked like there's more expression of a particular protein, which is if you read a lot of journals, at least at that point, a lot of articles in like biochemistry, molecular biology, a lot of it was based on, you know, the representative image, which of course everyone knows is the very best image that the scientists could come up with to show the effect in a particular experimental condition. That didn't feel satisfying to me. And so I wrote code to quantify fluorescent expression in these images that I was generating. And over the months that it took me to kind of figure out how to use the image processing packages MATLAB had, I had a lot of fun. It was just um, really novel and, and interesting to spend my time thinking about debugging code and thinking about the best representation of these images. And I was, yeah, I think at the same time, I was getting a bit burned out on MATLAB research. And so having done that and having seen the value of that kind of exercise, because it did enable me to kind of capture pretty small differences in intensity that I probably wouldn't have been able to pick up by eye, I decided to pursue a computational, I guess, a pivot to computational work. And that's where I was lucky enough to find a PI who would take me on with, you know, relatively little experience um, at the start of my postdoc. Yeah. So it was kind of more of a natural transition. It wasn't something you've always like had your eyes set on. It just kind of happened to be. That's right. And I actually remember at the beginning of graduate school, a friend of mine the same year was rotating in, in a lab where the project was all computational. And at the time, I kind of in my head scoffed at it. I thought, God, how can that be interesting? Like, here I am, I'm culturing cells, I'm changing the experimental conditions, I'm seeing like the changes in their, in their physiology or morphology. Like, how cool is that? Like, that's where it's at. That's where I want to be like, oh, you know, analyzing data on a computer, that's not satisfying. So I do reflect on that at times because, you know, I changed my mind. I totally changed my mind on the basis of trying A and trying B instead of making a lot of preconceived notions about what B would be like, realizing I liked it. Yeah. So to kind of follow up on that, how did you decide to transition from being a researcher to actually getting into the computational science industry? Well, if I understand correctly, you're asking about the end of my time at Stanford and then moving into working in 
first I worked for in a pharma company for a little bit, and then I was at 23andMe for five years. You're talking about that transition, right? Yes. Yeah. So this was another, it felt like, you know, a pivot. It felt like uh, taking a step into the unknown in some sense. During graduate school, there were times when I was very enamored with my work and I felt like, you know, remaining uh, an academic researcher was really the best path for me and being a PI and running my own lab and generating my own ideas and all that seemed very exciting. Um, and, and then there were times when I wasn't that into it. <laughs> there were times when I felt like, wow, I really don't want to spend all seven days of my week running these experiments and then writing papers and reviewers are so picky. And yeah, so, so I kind of went back and forth a bunch and I continued to go back and forth as a postdoc. And I even wrote a grant, you know, I, I put together an application for a K99 award, which if I had gotten, it would have been a really great transition into looking for a faculty position. But it was in the process of writing that grant that I think that was my final kind of like, okay, I... I put a lot of my time into this and at the end of the day, I'm, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> and I think what also turned me off is kind of the growing realization that there's a lot of politics in academic success, but I think kind of having been in industry now for seven, some years, there's a lot of politics there too. So that's not necessarily a reason to choose one or the other, but at the time it seemed like to be successful in academia, I'd have to you know, I have to leverage a lot of a lot of resources that had nothing to do with science. And so that didn't appeal to me either. Also, you know, I had two kids at that point, or I was expecting my second child and children are very expensive. Daycare is expensive. <laughs> and so the, the paycheck was also a significant draw at that point as well. Yeah. So speaking about your work at 23andMe, for a little context, when 23andMe first started, they were mainly relying on previous research done by others outside of 23andMe. However, once they built up their own research program, 23andMe had a lot more control over the data that they used. You know, as you worked there for several years, what were some of the benefits of using data directly from 23andMe to make predictions about someone's medical history or maybe medical issues? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think you hit the nail right on the head. At the beginning, of course, in order to have a product, 23andMe was entirely dependent on what was published by other groups. And to this day, you know, a lot of the product relies on variants that have been clinically validated outside of the company. And then just as you point out, as the database grew, it became possible for 23andMe to start doing its own research. And I think this was first manifest in running genome-wide association studies on phenotypes that maybe were not very interesting in academia or were very difficult to get funding for, for instance, I'm pretty sure this is true, not just a legend that was whispered about, but I think 23andMe was the first to publish on a gene for cilantro aversion. And that's just, I think, a fun example of the sorts of things that you one could discover in, in the kind of data set that 23andMe collected. So in terms of the distinct advantages, I think there are several. For one thing, data that are published regarding the effect size of a particular variant or the, the penetrance, meaning how frequently that variant actually leads to condition, these studies are often done in the context of, well, they are all done in the context of a specific population. Either we looked at East Asian males, or we looked at South Africans under the age of 30, or in the vast majority of cases, you know, we looked at Europeans recruited from these four places that make up the, the Thousand Genomes Project. And when you have your own database, you can define those populations. And you can do science that's more precise to the question that you really want to be asking. 
So for example, actually just today, I think 23andMe released a report on gestational diabetes, genetic predisposition to gestational diabetes. And that was actually a phenotype I worked on, even though I haven't been there for a year, I'm glad it finally got released. And when we were doing that work, we talked a lot about what is the age range that is appropriate to be looking in and trying to model this phenotype because it's really only going to be relevant to women in their childbearing years. But at the same time, there's a lot of overlap between predisposition for gestational diabetes and predisposition for type 2 diabetes. So we can define a cohort that perhaps includes both sets of individuals and see how well we can create a model that predicts just one of those phenotypes. Having that kind of flexibility by virtue of having you know, one's own database can be really powerful to, to kind of create a product that's going to be the most compelling to your audience. Yeah. So at 23andMe, as you guys continue to collect more and more data, that you guys sent out many surveys to gather, you know, even more data from individuals. So how, how do you as a data scientist make sure that the data that is collected, especially from surveys, is pretty accurate so that the predictions that you make themselves are not really flawed? Yeah. Another great question. So there are a couple of things. One, and this is probably the worst answer to this question, but I think it still holds. You accept that the data you get are going to be noisy. There will be some individuals who don't understand the question, who don't really read the answers and maybe accidentally tap the wrong one than what they mean. There may be some individuals who want to deliberately deceive for whatever reason. But if you assume, and I think this is a reasonable assumption to make, that this will be a very small minority of your answers and you're able to gather 1.5 million answers then you're really not that concerned about some fraction of people either misunderstanding the question or deliberately answering it incorrectly. Now, that assumes that your question is correctly designed to capture the phenotype of interest. And that actually takes a lot of careful thought. And uh, 23andMe has a whole team of individuals, many of whom have training in, in epidemiology or surveys in the field of psychology to craft the questions properly. So I'll give you one example. When I was at the company, we looked into cavities. And the question that we had in, already in the survey stream that our, we had already gathered data for, for probably at least 50,000 people, asked, how many cavities do you have? And when we looked at the distribution of answers, the vast majority of people said three or more. And that's because when, you know, when I went into the literature and I looked at the average number of cavities an adult has, it's like between 15 and 20. So this question was not a very good question for capturing the actual quantitative phenotype of the number of cavities. And I think whoever wrote it probably may not have realized, maybe they were thinking of their own experience and they happen to have very good teeth. <laughs> and I think this is an example of a question that, you know, was created pretty early in the company's history before 23andMe, I think, really developed a robust science of how to ask people questions correctly. So you really have to be careful there. And one thing you can do to verify whether you've asked the right question is by looking at what's published in the literature. So if you ask people about cavities and then you can look at the distribution of answers you got, and maybe what you find is that, hmm, females are reporting significantly more cavities than males. You know, is that consistent with what other people have published? If it's not consistent, then you have to think about, oh, um, you know, have we fielded this question to many more females than males by some unexpected accident? Or is there something else going on that's leading to this bias? So using external data as kind of a gut check can be really helpful too. Yeah. So kind of you assume that there may be issues and then look at the data that you've collected and then based on that, make more assumptions. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would say make more assumptions, but you can put into place kind of 
standard, what we call phenotype validation, standard practices around that rely on a mix of external data, if it's available, and internal data. I'll give you one more example. There's actually an instrument in psychology where you can discern whether a person who's asking, answering a questionnaire is lying to you. I don't actually know the details of this. A colleague of mine who's still at 23andMe was told me about and felt like this could be a pretty useful thing to deploy as well. But the point is the questions are deliberately crafted to catch inconsistencies. And so if a person answers the whole set of 10 or however many, you can then score them on the basis of, is this a reliable narrator in essence? And if they score poorly, then you can just disregard whatever else they tell you in your study. So that's another opportunity as well. All right, gotcha. So in the summer of 2018, a partnership between GSK and 23andMe was announced. You played a prominent role in helping discover novel drugs and finding new subsets of diseases. How important was data, specifically genetic data, to creating personalized medicine and tackling new diseases? I think the proof is still in the pudding. I think 23andMe is actually not the only company that is feverishly working to apply insights from human genetics to the discovery of novel drugs or repurposing existing drugs for novel applications. And I think, but 23andMe themselves have entered clinical trials with a few potential drug targets, drugs, you know, um, targeting specific genes that were identified through looking at genetics data, but we don't yet have kind of a very clear success to point to where we can say, We went all the way from genome-wide association studies and surveys to approved on the market, this efficacy, you know, this reduction in suffering, this, you know, improvement in symptoms. So I think the proof is in the pudding, but there's a lot of enthusiasm continuing around this approach to drug discovery. So what role did you play as a data scientist in developing personalized medicine for people? In truth, my role did not directly impact these efforts. The one exception to that would be actually the first two years of the company, the majority of my time was focused on a collaboration with Genentech, where we, Genentech at 23andMe, jointly carried out whole genome sequencing on 3,000 individuals who either had a diagnosis of Parkinson's or had a first degree family member with Parkinson's. And then I worked to set up computational pipelines to process the data with the hope of uncovering new genetic variants in Parkinson's that could aid in drug discovery. So I think that was my most direct contribution. And that, as I said, was part of a collaboration with Genentech. So the use of that data was, it lies with them. And I think at this point, we, we don't know, and certainly having left the company, I am no longer privileged to knowing the outcome of that work. Okay. So yeah, kind of hitting on your work with Parkinson's disease at 23andMe. So you led a research project to find phenotypes associated with Parkinson's disease. So you find variants, genetic variants associated with Parkinson's. Okay. Yeah, so there you collaborated with other Parkinson's researchers who are outside of 23andMe. So how did working with a larger team with diverse perspectives add to the effectiveness of the data collected and analytics and the models that were developed? There are a lot of suppositions in that question. I think what I'll tell you is that it really was an interesting experience to work with the folks at Genentech. Their group had had a lot of experience applying these kinds of studies to to drug discovery. And I think we learned a lot about how to integrate data sources from 
you know, different organizations. So in addition to those 3,000 individuals who were 23andMe consented participants in the research program, we also gathered data from publicly available sources from, from other consortia for individuals who did not have Parkinson's disease and they as controls. And working together with the Genentech team, I learned a lot about the right ways to harmonize those data sets. Because when you have genetic data that are sourced, especially sequencing data that are sourced from different projects, potentially different collection kits, certainly different laboratories, maybe different sequencing machines, there will be a lot of batch effects and a lot of bias introduced into the data just by virtue of things that have nothing to do with the biology you're interested in. So the Genentech team had had experience working with this kind of framework and helped us better understand how to process the data correctly. Yeah, so now I wanted to touch a little bit on your work at Grail. At Grail, you utilize multi-omics data mining. So does analyzing several layers of data from different ohms allow you to get a fuller view of a cancer cell's molecular profile? Well, at Grail, I'm working on data that don't come directly from a cancer tumor. We are working with data that comes from molecules found in the blood. So the idea is that if a person has cancer and they have a tumor somewhere in their body, the tumor is going to be shedding material that we can potentially identify through looking in the blood. But when we look in the blood, we also get material that comes from other tissues that aren't necessarily cancerous. So part of the challenge of the work actually is identifying what fraction of the signal we're picking up is relevant to a potential cancer and what fraction just reflects either a normal healthy physiology or maybe some other disease that is interesting, but it's not necessarily going to help us in our mission to detect cancer early. So to get back to your question, I think there's plenty of scientific work to show that when you layer multiple ohms of data on top of one another, you can get a better sense of the mechanisms that tumors use to develop and grow, spread, evade the immune system. I would say that the data we are currently working with isn't necessarily focused on kind of discovering fundamental tumor biology. We are more interested in uncovering everything we can about the traces a tumor leaves of itself in the blood. Okay, so kind of a follow-up to the last question, does using the method of multi-omics data mining make it easier to do large-scale data analysis and help GRAIL develop the multi-cancer detection test that it has? We hope so. I think we're still at a point of needing to prove out the promise of multi-omics. I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense that current GRAIL assay is based on methylation, in, of DNA by cancer, by kind of the cancer's mechanisms. But DNA is hard to detect. It can be very short-lived in the blood and degraded. So there are other molecules, and I'm deliberately being a little bit circumspect here because we haven't published this work. But there are other molecules that a tumor may expel that are longer lasting or may be more amplified. And so I think intuitively, it makes a lot of sense that combining the two will be beneficial. But I think at this point, all I can say is that we're still in kind of early stages of R&D to really prove that out. Yeah. So through your work, you have developed a biomarker for early detection of cancer. So how does machine learning and data analysis play a role in finding these biomarkers for early detection of cancer? Great question. It plays a very important role. There's no one biomarker for cancer. There's no single 
gene or fatty acid chain or protein that can distinguish cancer cases from controls. It's more like there are thousands of different pieces of evidence that you need to aggregate in order to make a guess about who does and doesn't have cancer. And the reality is that we, of course, want the most specific assay, the assay that can identify cancer apart from any other disease that an individual might have, or a person whose physiology is just a bit different and they do not have cancer, but they do have methylation patterns that are inconsistent with other individuals without cancer in the population. So fundamentally, we have to make a guess. And that's what machine learning enables us to do. And it enables us to make a very good guess. And the more evidence we give a model, and the more kind of methodologies we use to train that model on the data we do have, the better our guess can be about whether the individual has cancer, and if they do, what tissue the cancer presents in. Okay, so how do you ensure that the data that you collect? I mean, whether it be for research projects or projects that are directly applying to your company's work is free of bias and inclusive so that you can develop solutions that can really be applied to anyone across the world. That's a really important point. And this is a point that a lot of people in the genomics field are very aware of and working toward achieving. I think it is the unfortunate reality that our data remain biased because our ability to enroll individuals in our studies that reflect the diversity of the population is still not as good as it needs to be. So we're continuing to expand kind of the research pipeline and to be able to reach as many participants as we can who have diverse backgrounds in terms of their ancestry, who span all of the age ranges that we would be interested in, who reflect a wide variety of socioeconomic status, because that, of course, also has huge impacts on your health. So it's really, it is a work in progress. And I think, you know, in the terms of on the very technical side, when we build, certainly this was true at 23andMe, when we built predictive models of genetics, we had specific protocols for how to calibrate those models in different cohorts. Um, and here by cohorts, I mean individuals of different ancestry to attempt to create the most accurate prediction for people European descent, but also Middle Eastern descent, East Asian descent, admixed populations like Latino, African-American. Those actually can be some of the more challenging populations because the genetic profile is really just so heterogeneous. It's really beautiful from kind of the perspective of a geneticist to see all the different human histories represented in one person's genome, but it does make it more challenging to to really make a prediction that that's really accurate for someone with that kind of genetic background. Yeah, so it's kind of a work in progress. You guys haven't, you know, necessarily figured out all the elements associated with that. No, I don't think anyone has. But I am very heartened by the fact that this conversation getting a lot of attention and continues to get a lot of attention in purely academic circles, in translational research circles where people are developing tools you know, and research solutions for translating directly into the clinical space and, of course, in industry as well. So I think it is a collective challenge that people are rising to meet. So what measures that you can control do you take to ensure that the risk of developing a faulty algorithm to detect a certain illness is significantly diminished? Good question. 
So there's an important distinction to be made between clinical trials data and real world evidence. You can design a trial the best you can to reflect all kinds of diverse circumstances in the screening population. So we've touched on age, sex, race, socioeconomic status. You would also want to take into account individuals who have other illnesses that may interact with the illness that you're trying to either diagnose or treat. You can do the very best you can in your clinical trial, but what's equally important is to gather evidence about how the product is actually performing in the real world and taking great steps to square away inconsistencies that you may find. So at Grail, we have a whole team of scientists um, on the classifier interpretation side, whose job it is to be understanding discrepancies in performance of the models in, in different groups. Individuals who maybe have a disease subtype that we hadn't previously taken into account. Individuals who just kind of beat, <laughs> beat the same drum. You know, individuals who have a really distinct ancestral background that may make it difficult to accurately model their genetics. You need to use real-world evidence to kind of check all the assumptions that were made in the clinical trial. Now, that being said, I think there's a lot of great knowledge about how to do clinical trials properly. And, you know, people get degrees in this. So having a lot of experts at the table weighing in on the right way to design these trials is the best way to develop the product to begin with. As a data scientist, you deal with tremendously large data sets. So how do you clean and sort through this tremendous amount of data that is provided to you to select the best data that can be analyzed? Well, there are well-documented approaches to, to quality control of data that can help you identify kind of unexpected sources of bias or error. You know, in any data science 101 class you'll take, you'll learn the value of visualizing the data using different approaches to just look at what you've got. And if you see outliers in, like if you run up principal component analysis and your data are clustering together nicely, but then you've got three data points way out on the side, follow them up, figure out, see if you can explain why they're outliers. And if not, at least flag them for, you know, for downstream analyses. If you see something that confuses you, follow it up. Don't just assume like, oh, the, the majority of these things look good because it's really those outliers and edge cases that can teach you about important discrepancies in your data. To give you an example, you know, we recently had to go back and reanalyze some of the data in a particular experiment because we discovered that three individuals without cancer in our experiment actually had what, what are called heme conditions. So some condition related to their blood that's actually pre-malignant. So chances are, unfortunately for them, chances are pretty high that they will develop cancer in the next you know, several years. So those folks were skewing some of the results we were seeing and we had to pull them out, but we didn't know that until we saw some unexpected trends in the data and followed them up in order to explain, try and explain them away. What are some potential issues compared to the enormous benefit of using data science in healthcare and how can those potential issues be mitigated? Well, as a data scientist, you kind of want to quantify and model everything. But I think it's really important to be humble and recognize that we still don't have enough data to explain everything about human health with these, you know, with these computational approaches. So I think 
we have to maintain our respect for, for qualitative assessment and qualitative evaluations of people's you know, situations. I think you probably saw the headlines that Google Health is now no longer a thing. So Google had this health branch for a long time and have, not, have now reorganized. And I think Apple had made this big splash by declaring that they were going to solve electronic health records. And I think that effort has also come to a bit of a halt. And I think increasingly, there's an understanding that the thing that tech companies are good at, namely modeling and data wrangling, isn't enough to just solve health. <laughs> and I think that's because there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of nuance. There's still a lot of decisions doctors make that they couldn't write down to you, for you as an algorithm that it has to do with kind of their, their expertise and their own neural net in between their two ears that functions better than something that even the best data scientists can put together. How do you see the data science field evolving in the future, both in healthcare and in other fields? Well, I think there's no doubt that we're going to continue innovating on algorithms to make them increasingly more sophisticated. And I think we're going to get better at making more accurate predictions from smaller data sets. So I think that will be really powerful. I also think that we're going to continue to leverage the best combinations of kind of human intellect and artificial intellect. And probably some of the best solutions will come out of the right combination of human knowledge and the things that computers can do very well, namely crunch lots and lots of data quickly. Computers are certainly very, very far from generalized artificial intelligence and generalized AI is still what you need to solve some of the most complex, sorry, not generalized AI, generalized intelligence, period. The thing that humans are good at is still what you need to continue making a dent in some of our most complex problems. So I think I think the gains will really come from the right cooperation, if you will, between these tools we're continuing to develop and, and our own kind of human body of knowledge. Yeah, Olga, thank you so much for coming on to the Data Dive podcast. You provided amazing insight into this topic and you not just help strengthen mine, and, but also our audience's understanding of the applications of data science into the early detection of disease and the healthcare field. Um, so if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes.